This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we talk about the CU Boulder men's basketball team and their record-breaking year heading into the NCAA March Madness Tournament. Plus, we hear the story of a Coloradan who may be the world's first nonverbal podcaster. Our motto was to be a strong, independent woman and to be the boss of her life. And she reminds everybody about every day that she's the boss of her life. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. President Biden signed the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan into law last week. Among other things, the package allocates billions of dollars for K-12 schools. There's even a requirement to reserve some funding to address learning loss amid the pandemic. Overall, the year has taken a tremendous toll on education. Most kids and their parents want a return to in-person learning. Virtual classrooms just aren't the same, and many kids just miss the social interaction they get at school. But there has been an unexpected upside for some families through the experience. At one elementary school in Denver, the pandemic has tightened bonds between parents and teachers trying to get students through the unconventional year. Melanie Asmar is a reporter with Chalkbeat Colorado, and she joins us now to talk about what's working. Hey, Melanie. Hi. Can you tell me a little bit about Newland Elementary School? Uh, Because this is the school you wrote about. What is it like and how is it unique relative to other schools in Denver? So Newland is a small elementary school in southwest Denver. And one of the unique things that has come out of this year is that when when schools first shut down back in March of 2020, a year ago, the principal at Newland said, you know, we're really going to focus on social and emotional learning and really kind of connecting with families, even sort of over academics. They still did academics, obviously, but they really put an emphasis on connecting with families. And so back last spring, they were calling families like twice a week and checking in on them, making sure they had everything they needed, but just kind of also like the teachers were just sort of chatting with the students and asking them what they were up to. And I think that that forged like really strong bonds that have kind of helped them get through this year. And it sounds like parents have really been crucial allies for teachers at Newland. How has the pandemic impacted parent-teacher relationships? I spoke with several parents for the story who said, You know, never before this year did I have teachers' cell phone numbers. One parent said, I go through the M's in my contact list on my phone and it's miss this and miss that. Like they are texting teachers and calling teachers, you know, sort of about their children and about their children's learning because parents are now, you know, at home sort of acting as as proctors to their children's learning. And, And these parents were parents of first and second graders. And so, you know, they're still pretty little and need some help. And so the parents said, you know, like they have this kind of unique window into their children's learning and they'll text the teacher and be like, my child isn't isn't understanding how to make like the uh sound in the word book. Can you like check in with them tomorrow? And that's maybe not something parents would have would have known before, you know, uh, they wouldn't have that really up close look at their children's learning and be able to flag things like that for the teachers. I mean, it sounds incredibly personalized, really, for each student. The second grade teacher who was sort of the main focus of my story said, you know, I I always put an emphasis on getting to know students, but I've never like, you know, have the time to have like a five minute unstructured conversation with them you know, twice a week, just about like whatever they're into, not even necessarily about school. And she said, 
I think I have better relationships with my parents and students this year than I ever have before, which is not something she was expecting. Are educators at Newland able to measure academic progress? You mentioned that they're focusing on things like social and emotional growth. Where does academic progress fit into this? So the second grade teacher that I interviewed for the story said she's actually gotten through more of the curriculum this year than she even did last year. Like last year up until March was a normal school year. And she's actually gotten farther this year, even though it's been anything but a normal school year. And she said she thinks part of that is because there has been this heightened focus on, you know, we're worried that students are a little bit behind. You know, the teacher did say when when she got her new class of second graders this fall, she noticed some of them, you know, didn't quite learn everything they were supposed to in first grade. Like some of them did, you know, have some some skills that that maybe they'd missed at the end of first grade. And she said, like, so we really put like a laser focus on that this school year. And she thinks that's really helped. Like, I think she's feeling good about where her students are academically. I, I don't know if that's universally true, but for this teacher, it is. Melanie Asmar is a reporter with Chalkbeat Colorado. You'll find a link to her reporting at our website, KUNC.org. Melanie, thanks so much for speaking with us today. Thanks for having me. The men's basketball team at CU Boulder is heading back to the NCAA March Madness Tournament this week after a season full of coronavirus-related hiccups that culminated in a Pac-12 finals appearance. Despite that Pac-12 tournament loss to Oregon State, the Buffs are going into the big dance this week with the number five seed, the highest in program history in the modern NCAA era. Their first game of the tournament in Indianapolis is Saturday against Georgetown. Mike Rohn is the assistant head coach of the men's basketball team at CU Boulder, and he joins us now from Indiana to look back on a hectic pandemic season and to look ahead to the exciting tournament on the horizon. Mike, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Obviously a crazy year with the pandemic. It's led to postponed games and extra health and safety protocols. How has the team been dealing with the pandemic? How are you guys doing? Oh, you know, at this point, everybody's doing as well as can be expected. When you get to this point and you're kind of reached one of your goals to be playing in postseason, you know, that kind of makes all the hard work and sacrifice throughout the year pay off a little bit. It has been challenging for for every team, not just us, you know, the isolation and, and, and things of that nature that have made it really difficult. But we're doing what we love to do, and, and we're fortunate to be having this opportunity. It's been a, a pretty incredible season, I think, all things considered. What were you guys' expectations going into a season as hectic as this one? Well, our expectations, you know, on the court were, were very high. We had an excellent year last year. And had a lot of those guys returning from that team. Felt like we were an NCAA tournament team last year, and we earned that right. And obviously, that's when COVID all hit. That was a real difficult time for them because we really felt like we'd earned our way in last year as well. The expectations with COVID and how everything was going to go, that was just a day-by-day thing. So, you know, we were just hoping to manage through the protocol and stay as safe and uh, follow the guidelines that our administration helped put in place for us our doctors and the administrators and our trainers, they just did an amazing job trying to help our team be successful this year. So our expectations were were to be here and now we've got more. I wanted to ask about what the tournament looks like and if you could give us kind of a inside lane as to what your day-to-day looks like over the next week and how you think that's going to impact players. We're going through some testing protocol before we're even able to get out of our rooms. 
And so, you know, they, they brought breakfast to us. We'll test again here. And then I think once that next test comes back negative, we'll have an opportunity then to get together and start kind of a normal prep for, for the week. You know, we didn't find out till we arrived what day we were actually playing. And so, you know, we know we play Saturday and we've got a lot of time here. That, that's not normal for, for NCAA tournaments. You know, you usually go back home after the conference tournament and you, you have a couple of days, depending on whether you, you play the first day or the second day to kind of get your bearings about you. But, you know, we'll, we'll be here. We'll be pretty isolated. We're still trying to figure out what that's all going to look like. Your team played in the Pac-12 finals over the weekend, losing a close game to Oregon State. I'm wondering how a program like yours weighs the success in, say, conference tournaments like that one versus success on the national stage in March Madness. Is there more of a focus for you guys on the NCAA tournament? No, not not at all. We we have goals and playing for a Pac-12 championship was certainly one of those goals. So we weren't thinking about the NCAA tournament. We went to the Pac-12 tournament. We're going to compete for the championship and we put ourselves in that position and just came up a little short. Got to give Oregon State a lot of credit. They played really, really well throughout the whole tournament. But you know our guys fought really hard. We, we had a chance at the end. It was definitely a, a tough situation for our guys. And the good thing for them is that they were fortunate enough to play well enough to get into March Madness. And now we're just going to try to get our motors going and give it our best shot here. And your best shot is going to be tested Saturday by Georgetown, coached by basketball great Patrick Ewing. What's on your mind heading into this matchup and heading into the tournament play in general? Well, you know, obviously we're really excited about a five seed. It's, it's the highest seed we've ever had. Once you get to the NCAA tournament, you're not going to play against a bad team. That's for sure. So the matchup becomes critical. How do your teams match up with your opponent? Luckily, Coach Ewing is not playing in this game. That That's a good thing for us. You know, he's just coaching. But, you know, they, they obviously kind of had the same run Oregon State did in the Big East tournament. They went in and played just exceptionally well for four days and earned their way into March Madness. So it'll be a definite challenge for us. We're just excited to start preparing for them. This will mark the fifth trip to the NCAA tournament in the last 10 years it was scheduled for the program. How does going to the dance 50% of the time over the last 10 years help recruit players who would otherwise be eyeing programs in states that are known for basketball, states like Indiana and Illinois and Kentucky? Every kid's dream growing up is to get a chance to play in the NCAA tournament. You know, what, what Coach Boyle has done in our 11 years here is, is really amazing. I mean, we had a great year last year. We would have been in the dance last year if it wouldn't have been for Kobe. COVID and just certainly a big part of what we work for. And, and as, as you try to recruit guys, it's very critical. And I definitely think of, of Colorado as a basketball state without any doubt. We've really changed the narrative, I think, a little bit in, in terms of what it means to play for the University of Colorado. We continue to try to keep building on for sure. Mike Rohn is the assistant head coach of the men's basketball team at CU Boulder. Mike, good luck this weekend and thanks for talking with us. You bet. I appreciate you having me on. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. March is Women's History Month, and often that sparks a deep dive into the past to learn about the lives of women and their contributions. Today, we're bringing you the story of two women, mother and daughter, who are shaping women's history in the present right here in Colorado. Mikkel Learned's story starts in South Korea, where she was orphaned at only three months old. 
She was then brought to Denver, where doctors would diagnose her with significant cerebral palsy. Then, Catherine Carroll entered the picture and set her sights on the good life for the two of them. The good life didn't come easily. Catherine had to advocate for her daughter in schools that had never educated a student with a communication and mobility disability, all the while fighting to get Mikkel on Colorado's Medicaid waiver program to cover wheelchairs, communication devices, and therapy bills. These days, well after graduating as an outstanding senior in Denver and after starting her public speaking career, Mikkel and her mom Catherine are the masterminds behind the Shining Beautiful series, which has spurred a blog, a book, and a podcast. There's a whole lot more to their story, and so we're going to let them take things from here. Here's Mikkel Learned and Catherine Carroll. I went to school in Denver, graduated outstanding senior, and have always pushed limits. The podcast is another way for me to share my story. As a parent, um, Mikkel going through each of her, her schools and regular education, surprising with special ed support, mm-hmm. uh, we set up vocational goals for her in middle school mm-hmm. and high school. And that really set her up to graduate as outstanding senior, but it also gave her a chance to do work in summer school, some over the summers, like most kids do. And we really tried to follow a typical path. For years, I traveled with mom around the country presenting on how to get what you want and be successful. I had goals and worked hard. She traveled to about 14 states and she uh, briefed Congress on um, working. I want to work. I want to make money is what she said. And um, and then she was also able to speak at the National Press Club representing 8 million people with disabilities on the challenges between social security and work. So she really enjoyed that. But then when people started going to webinars and she looked at a, a white light, she kind of lost her her zeal for, um, for the work because she just wasn't getting what she usually got back. I did not like those because I could not see who I was talking to but podcasting. I get to talk with people and with Zoom and FaceTime, I can see them. And so my son, her brother, um, suggested that we consider podcasting because we'd been so successful. And so we, we went down that path. We have a lot of listeners, and I'm excited to show people who I am and how technology makes my life and other people's lives better. We developed the website, and mm. we started blogging, and and that's where the book came mm. from. Was um, The book is kind of a, a different piece because it talks about whether you can or not. And I think one of the things that we all doubt is as a mom, I wondered if I could be a good enough mom to Mikkel and help her reach her goals. She wondered if she could reach her goals. Her brother wondered if he could be a good brother. And many of the people that work with Mikkel um, to support her in her life wonder if they can help her do this because she's kind of a pioneer in that regard. There aren't a lot of people out there doing what she does. And so it's, it's kind of that overcoming doubt piece. So a motto that we have on our websites is, uh, if you're gonna doubt anything, doubt your limits. So we just keep trying stuff and seeing if it works. If it doesn't work, we let it go. Um, If it does work, we just keep doing it. (laughs) And we try to have as much fun and see everything is kind of a learning experience. So the overall goal is to keep learning. You know, and keeping that sense of community has been really important for both Mikkel and I, the Shining Beautiful community. Shining Beautiful comes from Mikkel's um, Korean middle name, which means Shining Beautiful. And that's Mikkel. She shines beautiful. And so when everybody comes into our our circle, our community, that's the goal is for this, for people to shine beautiful, to be their best selves. And uh, 
And that's kind of what the book is about, right, Mikkel? It's people's stories. It's a simple book. It's not nothing too sophisticated, but it's just people's stories on struggles they went through when they thought about being a friend. There's a nice story about Ian Harwick, who we met as a barista, and uh, he got involved and he helped us architect some of the things that Mikkel's been able to achieve in terms of her business and helping her get her own home, just kept problem solving and helping us brainstorm. So this has been a community effort with Mikkel getting ideas much more like a mastermind group or a brain trust. Technology allows me to be the boss of my life and I like being the boss. That's right. So the podcast is, gives her voice to that. <laughs> A little bit better. <laughs> you, what you get in the podcast that you don't get in uh, either the book or the blog is Mikkel's sassiness. <laughs> her, her idea of being a boss. So that's kind of fun, huh? I use my iPad and the touch chat app to communicate. I push the buttons and then the iPad speaks for me. Kind of like Stephen Hawking. That's right. Mikkel actually met Stephen Hawking when he years ago when he came through town um, and he was doing a brief history of time. He at the at the Buell Theater in Denver, and he um, always when he was traveling, that was quite a while ago, and she was still in in school. He would ask to meet young people who spoke like him, and he he had a special audience with them to answer their questions and to encourage them, because one of the challenges with her technology is that we're not very good listeners and communicators generally with somebody who takes a minute to put together their thoughts and. Um, and we're, you know, we're used to very quick answers. And even for Stephen Hawking, it would take him two or three minutes to do that. But technology at least conveys the thoughts. It's gotten better, less clunky. We use an iPad, um, as she said, and an application called TouchChat. I feel in charge. I like being a leader. I like people to see I am a hard worker. That's true. So I think we try to demonstrate it and um, and celebrate, you know, being a woman all the time. I mean, I, as a parent, I really wanted Mikkel to feel the strength of her character and her abilities. Um, and, you know, our motto was to be a strong, independent woman and she, and to be the boss of her life. And she reminds everybody about every day that she's the boss of her life. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it took, right. And I'm challenged too, as uh, caregivers on mm. oftentimes don't have the greatest of of lives um, because they they tend to tends to be a sacrificial setup where either the person you're supporting gets what they need or the person the caregiver gets what they need or neither one of you get your needs met and what we've tried to do is make sure that both of us are happy both of us are healthy both of us get what we want and we don't get it all the time certainly um, but that's kind of the the larger picture and we've had, both of us have had a lot of really good times in our life. Thank you so much for talking to me today. And listeners, as always, keep shining beautiful. That was Mikkel Learned and Catherine Carroll, two Colorado women shaping history today with the Shining Beautiful series. Henry Zimmerman put this piece together. During the pandemic, most theaters were forced to close their doors. But Colorado's drive-ins have found new opportunities and new audiences. With spring just around the corner and the state's handful of drive-in theaters gearing up for the season, KUNC arts reporter Stacy Nick spoke with Drive-Ins of Colorado author Michael Kilgore to find out more about our outdoor theater history. 
historically, Colorado didn't immediately hop on the trend of drive-ins. Why do you think that was, and, and what changed? The problem was is that people thought that people out west weren't going to like it because the, the seasons would be too short because it would get too cold. After the war, Leonard Albertini had a hard time trying to convince people in Denver that this is a, something to try out. Uh, Albertini finally got Harris Wolfberg involved, and he had uh, got a group of investors together to build the what would become the East Drive-In in Aurora. And it was such a huge success that everybody just piled right on afterwards, and uh, it just exploded from there. Tell me a little bit about the history of Colorado's first drive-in. The East opened in 1947, so that was the start of the drive-in era in Colorado. In 1955, uh, a Denver Post photographer got a photo of President Eisenhower, who was convalescing across the street, apparently from either the screen tower or just from top of the projection booth. The theater was renamed the East 70 in 1965 when they added uh, 70 millimeter projectors. In uh, August 1994, two teenagers working the, the box office up front were almost killed by a robber with a knife who was later apprehended and convicted and such. But the theater closed just a few months later. I don't know if those two are related, but it would be hard to mention the history of the East without remembering that awful incident. I was really fascinated reading your book, just with all the details and the, the stories, things like the East 88th used to show X-rated movies, and there was the Delta Drive-In War, and that the, the first road spike strip essentially was designed at Sterling's Starlight Drive-In to keep people from going in the exit and sneaking in. One of the projectionists there, you know, they had a standing job before the movie started to just hang around the exit path to make sure people weren't going in the wrong way. There's a long history of people trying to beat the system and getting in to see the movie for free. And so they worked out this kind of crude looking and kind of heavy, oh, I don't know, steampunkish looking uh, thing that's otherwise just like what you would see when you drive out of a, a rental car agency where they, they are their spikes pointed in one direction and if you go in that direction your cars are going to get ripped up just shows you that the necessity is the mother of invention in this and in all other things what do you think it was that led to the decline in drive-ins the best way to describe it is to first talk about the factors that led to drive-ins in the first place led to their extreme popularity because they were just off the charts popular in the early 1950s a lot of the reasons why are things that today we would have a hard time imagining we had to uh, dress up to go to an indoor theater it was more like a night on the town you had to dress up and you had to go pay to park. Then um, land at the edge of towns post-war was cheap. Then there's television. Nobody had it at all in Colorado until the early 50s. So when drive-ins got started, they weren't there. It wasn't available at all. Daylight saving time wasn't here yet. The movies that Hollywood was creating were suitable for all audiences for the most part. That You could bring the whole family if you wanted to and uh, there'd be something for everybody. What caused the decline of drive-ins was all of those factors falling away one by one. Indoor theaters made it to the suburbs and they had free parking. So that was no longer an issue. And the casual wear was now okay to go see a movie in. Then um, the movies themselves became more mature, not like in the racy way, but just with more mature themes, not simple themes like Westerns and just good guys and bad guys kind of thing. Daylight saving time came around, which cut a very important hour right off the top of the evening. You know, if you're used to summer now, dusk doesn't really come until almost nine o'clock. It's hard to watch uh, a long movie on a school night. Land got expensive pretty much everywhere, anywhere near a um, city. And of course, TV. TV arrived. 
TV set prices went down. And even though it was a small uh, picture, it was paid for and there it was and cable arrived with more channels. And then there were HBO and other movie channels that gave you the same kind of commercial-free uncut movies that you'd get on, on there. And then the ultimate killer was the video cassette recorder. I've noticed over the last year with the pandemic that drive-ins have had a real resurgence in popularity. They've been used for everything from concerts to even Red Rocks got in on it a little bit and kind of had their own mini pop-up with their film on the rock season in their parking lot. Do you think that that will kind of spur a new renewed interest that will continue after things kind of get back to quote-unquote normal? A little mentioned uh, reason for the popularity of driving in the early 50s was the polio epidemics that were going on. Whenever a polio flare-up would happen, the indoor theaters would close and people would still tend to go to the drive-ins. So there's a little bit of a parallel there. Once drive-ins got over the last big hump, which was the switch over to digital projection, the ones that survived that seem to be pretty much in it for the long haul. There aren't very many drive-ins these days that close from lack of interest. It's a great way to see a movie kind of privately, kind of publicly, and with nice breezes and a beautiful sky above you. So I would hope that sort of enthusiasm would continue. Michael Kilgore is the author of Drive-Ins of Colorado and Drive-Ins of Route 66. Kilgore is speaking this Wednesday at the Aurora History Museum's virtual lunch lecture series. You can find out more about the event and read more of our interview at KUNC.org. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, we'll get details on a recent study on the presence of THC from cannabis in breast milk. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.